know it's just as well that we're all stuck inside because it's still snowing here in Denver. It's the middle of April. I'm Aaron Weiss. Welcome to Go West Young Podcast, your socially distant show about America's parks and public lands. On the show today, I am very excited. We've got Mustafa Santiago Ali. He's the founder of the EPA's Office of Environmental Justice. We will talk to him about everything from why he couldn't work for the Trump administration after working under Republican and Democratic administrations for more than two decades. We'll also talk about the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, which is coming up next week. But first, let's do the news. The Trump administration keeps pushing through new environmental attacks, even as the Interior Department keeps getting hammered for its slow response to coronavirus, putting employees at risk. Miranda Green, reporting for Huffington Post, got a hold of a database that shows 40 contagious employees across the Interior Department. But it's not clear how many have had it in total because the counts she found go down on some days, up on others. It's not clear whether that changing count means that someone got better or they died bleakly enough. The Interior Department is refusing to release any details about where employees got sick or whether it was because they were in contact with tourists before the Park Service closed national parks that were being crowded with visitors like the Grand Canyon. As for those environmental attacks, Interior Secretary David Bernhardt is so busy rushing through actions, we had to put them all into a spreadsheet. We have now counted 65 separate actions taken by the Interior Department since March 6th, when President Trump signed the first emergency coronavirus bill. That includes nearly 40 public comment periods that have been opened or closed, expecting Americans who are dealing with a pandemic to stop and weigh in on these new rules and policy proposals. It also includes nine lease sales of publicly owned oil, gas, and coal, and it includes a dozen different actions that have been finalized as Interior races the clock against the Congressional Review Act. Now, that's something that will kick in sometime in the coming weeks. It potentially opens a window for a future Congress and president to erase policies that get implemented later in this year. Among those 65 actions that we're tracking is the final approval for a land use plan that affects hundreds of thousands of acres of public land in western Colorado and opens up almost all of it to oil and gas development. Patrick Dooling is the executive director of the Western Slope Conservation Center, and he joins us on the line from Paonia, Colorado. Patrick, I assume uh, you're also sheltering in place these days. Yes, yes, we are. We are sheltering in place, uh, do, doing our best to stay at home and follow the governor's orders. All right. Give it to me plain. Mm-hmm. How bad is this resource management plan? This resource management plan for the Uncompagre Field Office uh, is really concerning. Uh, it is... Uh, you know, another uh, Trump administration plan that prioritizes uh, energy uh, resource extraction and fossil fuel development uh, over the concerns of local community members, uh, over uh, you know, uh, the needs of the environment and protecting the natural resources that make our home on the Western Slope so unique. Uh, so it's a, it's a really concerning plan. A lot of folks who may not be familiar with this part of the state, uh, it's quite different than what you might think of as the Rocky Mountains, uh, the the evergreens and the pine trees everywhere. G- give us a sense of the the landscapes that are affected by this resource management plan. Uh, sure. This plan covers about 675,000 uh, acres of surface land between Colorado's North Fork Valley down to Telluride and, and towards the out further along the western slope out to the Morris Canyon in that area. So 
beautiful Red Rock Canyons, uh, really great uh, agricultural land, um, and, and just some really spectacular landscapes. A lot of the attention and the opposition to this draft plan when it came out was focused on the North Fork Valley in particular. Why is that so important and so sensitive, and what does this management plan mean for that valley in particular? Absolutely. Uh, the community of the North Fork Valley has reimagined itself into a thriving agricultural, recreation, and tourism hub. Uh, for the past hundreds of years, for the past hundred years, uh, coal mining has has been a dominant industry, and as that started to decline, uh, a lot of folks have have looked to our agricultural and our recreation resources to create a more diverse and resilient economy. Um, you know. New businesses, uh, new home and internet-based businesses are popping up, uh, along with a lot of clean energy opportunities uh, that are really creating a more sustainable future for our area. Unfortunately, this plan uh, is going to throw us back into those sort of boom and bust cycles of the fossil fuel economy and really lacks the critical protections that our community needs uh, to create a more uh, sustainable and resilient economy in the future. A number of county and local governments weighed in against the the plan uh, when it was announced as a draft. Is there any indication that the Interior Department, the Trump administration, listened to those local governments uh, before issuing this final plan last week? Uh, we don't get that sense. Uh, we, we really get the sense that the, the BLM has prioritized the, the Trump administration's energy-dominant agenda over our local concerns. Uh, over the summer, uh, the public employees for environmental responsibility, uh, PEER, as they're known, uh, did a where they found documentation, essentially, that the D.C.-based uh, BLM office overruled the local concerns of, of field managers and uh, really the, the local input of our community here uh, to prioritize those, those fossil fuel dominance uh, uh priorities of the Trump administration. What does it signal to you that this plan was released as the country is shut down because of coronavirus? Is this just regular scheduling or, or do you think the Interior Department was trying to, to hide something or, or pull a fast one? It's, it's very concerning that, that this plan was released in the midst of a national emergency and a global pandemic. And uh, in addition to that, it was also during the Easter and Passover holidays. Um, it's, it's really concerning. I, I won't speculate as to the reasons that uh, the BLM might do this. Um, I, you know, other than, you know, it's just it's concerning that as our community is distracted here uh, battling this emergency, that the BLM continues to prioritize this fossil fuel dominance agenda uh, above all else. What, uh, what are the next steps here? Does this get challenged in court? Uh, our immediate next steps uh, at this point are to review the, the fine details of, of the plan. Uh, we're still waiting on, on a lot of the uh, nitty-gritty data and shape files from the BLM to really do uh, a full analysis. Um, we're digging through the, the plan. It's a 500-page document and uh, really trying to, to get a sense uh, and get some feedback from our community about their major concerns. And, and go from there. All right. Patrick Dooling is the executive director of the Western Slope Conservation Center on the line from Paonia. Patrick, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Aaron.
Our guest today is a world-renowned advocate and big thinker. He spent 24 years at the Environmental Protection Agency, which he joined as a teenager, founding the EPA's Office of Environmental Justice. You might know him from his work with the Hip Hop Caucus or his appearances on just about every cable network under the sun. These days, he's at the National Wildlife Federation as the Vice President of Environmental Justice, Climate and Community Revitalization. Mustafa Santiago Ali, it is an honor to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So you have such a broad reaching professional background as we just covered. I'm curious what drew you to National Wildlife Federation now? I guess it was just a part of, of, of the journey. You know, God puts us where we're supposed to be when we're supposed to be there. And um, it, it actually is full circle for me. Uh, you know, I was raised in Appalachia and a little bit in Michigan, spent a lot of time um, outdoors. My father was a big hunter and fisherman. Um, so from a very early age, had a great appreciation uh, for wildlife, a great appreciation for our natural spaces and, and making sure that they're protected uh, and honored. Um, and, and also, you know, learning the connections between, you know, what was impacting our natural spaces and the same things that were impacting, you know, uh, lives that were going on in inner cities and suburbia and, and in rural areas as well. So. It all kind of just came together for me and being a blessing being at uh, NWF. So you then started doing social justice work when you were just a teenager. I imagine that your your experience with your, your father growing up f tied into that. So how did that end up then affecting the work that you did at EPA? And, and more importantly, I guess, how did you end up getting in there as a teenager and having this major impact? Yeah, so I started working on social justice issues um, as, a, as a teenager, as a very young person. You know, um, my father, I come out of a faith-based family, but also my father, you know, was an engineer and uh, he was really big on workers' rights. My grandfather, you know, I think it was 40 plus years in the coal mines. So he also was a union person, you know, uh, fighting for better working conditions uh, and some other issues uh, as a young person that I got engaged with. And then I was blessed, uh, there was a program called the Environmental Careers Organization that was you know, really focused on getting young people of color uh, into uh, organizations that were focused on protecting, you know, why, you know, protecting the planet really uh, and the environments that we all live in. And uh, that was sort of my journey. I, I was just super blessed, you know, early, early on when I was still really young, I got adopted by a number of civil rights leaders, environmental justice leaders and others. Um, and at that time, there weren't a lot of young people um, who, you know, especially young people of color, um, you know, who were in the space. Um, so great folks like Hazel Johnson, who many of your listeners probably won't know who she was, but she's the mother of the environmental justice movement. Um, you know, she was one of the folks who adopted me along with a number of the others. And, they said, you know, if you're going to be in this space, if you're going to work on these issues, then it's got to be authentic. You've got to really spend time in communities. You've got to know what's going on because you'll probably be in places and spaces that maybe we aren't. And if you're going to advocate, then, you know, there's got to be authenticity in that. So I'm always extremely thankful to all those leaders who put their trust in me um, and who tutored me um, and, and to this day who are still family. I it seems fair to say that social justice is linked with environmental justice. Is it possible to have one without the other? Or if you, you try to get to environmental justice but ignore the social component, what are you leaving on the table? 
Well, you know, environmental justice is so much more than most people know. They hear the term and they assume that it's just about the environmental, you know, those disproportionate environmental impacts that continue to happen in communities of color and lower wealth communities and on indigenous land. But it's also about transportation issues. It's about housing issues. Uh, it's, it's about public health issues, which really have become extremely apparent today with everything we're dealing with with COVID-19. Uh, and some of the challenges that are there and seeing disproportionately certain communities are being impacted more. You know, it's also about jobs. Uh, in the environmental justice movement, people have always been advocating for jobs, um, but they wanted to make sure that they were jobs that were not going to continue to impact their communities, uh, jobs that were not going to shorten their lives as they worked in that space. Um, and, you know, now we have so many different opportunities uh, around the new sort of clean energy space. Uh, and other opportunities. So it doesn't matter if we're in Appalachia, doesn't matter if we're on the Rust Belt, on the Gulf Coast, in the breadbasket, or on either of the coasts. You know, there are a number of new opportunities that exist um, to get people into, you know, higher paying jobs that are healthier and that help folks to have, you know, a very sustainable future. Right now, as we're recording this Thursday morning, the Trump administration is about to roll back some rules on mercury emissions from coal-fired power plants uh, in the midst of a respiratory pandemic. Obviously, a, a decision like that is going to have disparate impacts on communities of color in the midst of a pandemic that we have already seen have has a tremendous racial disparity in terms of who's hospitalized and who is dying. What would... In, in your opinion, what would a, a more just environmental response to coronavirus be looking like right now? Well, we should be much more focused uh, on these environmental impacts that continue to happen. Let's anchor your listeners and viewers in the reality of what's going on, because sometimes folks just don't know. And, and I believe once people have the information then they have a responsibility to do something. So we know that in our country, the United States of America, which all of us love, 100,000 plus people die each year prematurely from air pollution. That's more folks who are dying from air pollution than are dying from gun violence. That's more folks who are dying from air pollution than are dying from car crashes. And we can go down the laundry list of how this is a significant issue that is taking the lives of uh, you know the citizens and residents of our country. Uh, and disproportionately, we find that communities of color are living closer to these facilities um, and, you know, they are disproportionately losing their lives in this space. In our country, we have 24 to 25 million people who have asthma. We got 7 million kids. So we know African-American and Latinx folks are the ones who are going to the emergency rooms, the ones who are losing their lives. But we also have, you know, uh, lower wealth white communities and working class white communities who are also caught up in these numbers that sometimes we don't talk about. So we also know that this air pollution, these actions, you know, the Trump administration has made some decisions recently. So they decided that they weren't going to enforce environmental laws during the COVID-19 pandemic. So that means that more pollution, and we all know there are good folks who are in business and industry, but we got some other shady folks who sometimes don't follow the rules even when people are watching. So if nobody's enforcing, then we know more than likely there's gonna be more pollution that's going uh, you know, into communities. Um, and, and, you know, what we find is, and there's a new study that came out from Harvard, and it's something that all of us have already known, is, is that if you live in certain areas, you're much more likely to have significant impacts from pollution. And now they've actually linked it to COVID-19. Um, so we know that 
you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of more folks who are getting impacted because when you're, um, you know, exposed to the air pollution, there's chronic medical conditions that we find in these communities. We find cancer clusters. Um, we find liver and kidney disease. We find heart disease. And we also find lung diseases at much higher rates. And we know that this makes you more susceptible. Let me say that one more time for everybody who's listening. It makes you more susceptible to COVID-19, to the coronavirus. So for the Trump administration to do anything to weaken the protections just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because we already know the baseline amount of lives that we're losing. And now we overlay that with this epidemic um, and making even more people vulnerable, for me, just doesn't make sense. On the flip side of that, we see sometimes genuine uh, disagreement in communities of color, particularly if you look at, say, the, the Navajo Nation, which is a nation that has been devastated by the impacts of uranium mining, of coal mining. On the other hand, this is a nation that is economically dependent on coal. And as coal declines, how do you how do you address that conundrum of health and environmental justice versus economic justice and the sheer reality of of needing money to come in to these communities? Without a doubt. And, and, you know, one of the principles of the environmental justice movement is that communities speak for themselves. So no one has the right to tell another community what they should or should not be in support of. What we should be doing is one, making sure the education is there so people understand, you know, what will be the impacts of whatever entity that may or may not be there. And also get some real reality about the jobs that are associated. So, you know, I've been doing this for a while now and I've seen many times when industries have moved into an area and they made some significant promises about jobs. And when you unpack that, the types of jobs that the communities who are dealing with the impacts get are usually lower paying at best um, and, and sometimes non-existent because people will bring folks from other parts of the country into that space. So that's one part of the conversation. The other part of the conversation that I find that many communities, when you actually sit down and, and begin to explore what the opportunities are, is that most folks want to have a safe job. Most folks want to have a job where they don't have to worry about their children or grandchildren's lives being shortened or impacted. And I love when people share the question that you did with me, because, you know, I'm one of the few, if you want to label me as a leader who actually comes from Appalachia, comes from these areas where people are having to struggle with some really tough choices and watching, you know, industries disappear for a number of different reasons. So I sit down with folks and have the tough conversations. And many of them are like, well, we hear about these new sets of jobs that are out there. Why isn't anyone coming to us and having a conversation about what that looks like and the types that we would be looking for? Why are politicians stopping these industries from being able to come into our states and give us a choice? Because most people, if they had a choice between a, a job that's going to impact their health or their family's health and one that's cleaner, are probably going to choose the latter. And I'll just share this, this quick example with you. When I drive home, to visit my family and I'm driving, you know, leaving the DC area, going through Maryland, getting through Western Maryland. And just as I'm about to move into West Virginia, you look on the hillside, on, on, actually on top of the mountains and you see these giant windmills that are there. I mean, they just line the ridges. 
And as soon as you drop into West Virginia, they disappear. And I remember I was doing an event in, in West Virginia and I posed the question to folks. And I said, are the folks in Maryland better than you? And of course, no one is going to say that someone in another location is better than you. So my question is, why do they get the opportunity to be able to uh, you know, take advantage of this new industry, to be able to build these things that are creating jobs and, and cheaper forms of energy, and our folks aren't? And that's the question. Why aren't we, when we have this conversation, actually saying, why aren't these new sets of jobs that go to places like California and New York? Those folks are great folks there, but they're no better than the folks who are in Kentucky and Ohio and Western Pennsylvania and West Virginia and so forth and so on. So how much of that is state policy, is federal policy, is just the sheer geographic dif- differences of where you can build wind turbines? How, how do you get there from, from point A to point B and get those clean energy jobs going into West Virginia, going into the Navajo Nation? Well, part of this, is, as we all know, we're just you know, a lot of folks have been resistant to actually doing anything of significance is to get money out of politics, because common everyday folks usually uh, are not a part of many of the conversations where wealthier folks are making decisions about how we will live our lives, what are going to be the opportunities in our space. So for me, a part of it is, you know, getting that to as much as possible out of it so that everyday people are the ones who are actually framing out and making the decision about what goes on. The other part is we just have to be able to show people examples of how, you know, communities have been able to transform, have been able to revitalize um, by taking, you know, power back into their own hands uh, and framing out what their future looks like. So whether we're talking about in the Navajo Nation uh, and, you know, for anybody who's been to the Four Corners, or, or some of the other reservations, which have uh, non-existent infrastructures in many instances or crumbling infrastructures. You know, there has to be a serious conversation about this disinvestment that's happened in those areas and how that disinvestment means that these communities in many instances have to just take whatever um, is there and not be thinking about, you know, what a brighter future can look like. And it's the exact same thing in Appalachia. Um, you know, we've got to be able to show people how real change can actually happen. Once you show folks that, and they have some security in knowing that other people who look like them, who come from their backgrounds, have been able to make real change happen, then they're much more likely to be able to, to, to push, um, you know, the, our politicians and our policymakers um, to want what that better life actually looks like. In terms of how to push politicians and policymakers. You obviously were in a position for for the better part of a quarter century to do that at the EPA. You were there through Republican and Democratic administrations, and then you finally left towards the beginning of the Trump administration. I, I'm wondering what happened there. What what was so different that you you decided this was not an administration you could work with on the inside? Yeah, you know, and, and I'm so glad that you brought that up because. You know, a lot of the work that has happened um, has happened in a bipartisan way in the past. Most folks don't know that the Office of uh, Environmental Justice, uh, actually it was environmental equity at that time, got started under William Riley, who was under a Republican administration at that time. Um, and, and, you know, there had been a ebb and flow uh, and evolution um, that happened uh, over those 20 plus years under all kinds of different administrations. But when we got to this administration, you know, one, some folks get really upset at the president. The president told you exactly who he was, the things that he was going to do. I don't think most folks believed him. 
there's a famous quote that says, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Not enough folks in the country actually did. Um, and, and, you know, when I took a look at um, what they were proposing, the actions that they were doing, I knew that it was going to um, cost people their lives and make people sick. And I knew the communities that I had worked for and served over the years, you know, they had worked extremely hard just to get some basic protections in place, to get relationships built, to get, you know, to be able to get in the door and sit down at the table to have some conversations. And, and, uh, and I knew that unfortunately, this administration, that wasn't something that they were interested in. And I hope that I was wrong when I resigned. And in the letter that I wrote that a reporter told me over a million people have read, you know, I pointed out to this administration, you know, the successes that have happened over the years, the tools and resources that were developed and the resource that they had and really incredible folks who worked there at the agency, if they were just willing um, to actually, you know, utilize all of those, that they could be champions. They could be champions for the environment. They could be champions for real change happening. They could be champions for creating a new sets of jobs. Um, but uh, unfortunately, um, what I had predicted would happen has happened at an even more egregious level, a much more dangerous level for all communities across our country, but especially our most vulnerable. That's a rather bleak segue into my next question, which is that next week is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Number one, how do you think the, everything you just talked about reflects on the state of of Earth Day right now and how the meaning of that day has changed over the last five decades? Well, you know, sometimes folks get comfortable. We all do it in our lives. Um, and, and sometimes you kind of need to get shook up a little bit as my auntie would say. <laughs> and, you know, this has been a moment where most folks, you know, we go about our lives, we don't necessarily think a whole lot about the air. You know, we just breathe it in and we assume it's gonna be something good for our body. When we turn on the tap, we assume because, you know, if we were blessed to have enough resources to pay our bill that something, you know, clean is coming out of the tap. But now folks are starting to realize you know, how easily it could be for us to slip backwards, for, you know, for us to put ourselves in a position um, where people are being impacted. You know, the beauty of this moment, too, is, you know, over the last 50 years, you know, we started before the first Earth Day because you had rivers catching on fire, the Cuyahoga River. You had places across our country especially in more urban settings, but there were sometimes in rural settings also where people literally couldn't see the sun because of all the smog, especially in the cities, you know, and, and people decided that something had to change. So they began to get together. And that first Earth Day, you know, was so monumental because it began to get this focus. And thankfully that focus did begin because now we understand some of these impacts that are coming from climate change and are happening now. But we also now see that there are so many different components. So sometimes we just get focused on what's happening in Washington, D.C., with the Trump administration or whatever administration it might be that's in the White House. And we're forgetting about all of this incredible uh, advocacy and growth that is now happening on the state level and in cities. When the president decided to remove himself or remove our country from the Paris Climate Accord, there were all kinds of governors and mayors um, in both, you know, red and blue places who said, wait a minute, 
this doesn't make sense. We've got to do something. You see foundations, you see business and industry folks, you see young people uh, and frontline communities all coming together uh, to make change happen. And all of that comes from this set of advocacy, this set of education and learning, you know, from 50 years ago with Earth Day and the environmental justice movement uh, and a number of other movements. So I'm, even though we're in some very challenging times, I am uh, hopeful and optimistic um, that we are right at the precipice of change. Um, and I think we're going to see some amazing things happen. A silver lining, if you will, of creating a, a new generation of awareness and activism when it comes to, to, to environmental justice and obviously climate change in particular being the most urgent issue, it seems right now. It, from your eyes, what does progress on climate change look like both this year, as you look at the the end of the Trump administration's first term, and then looking into the future, uh, to the, the end of the decade or even to, to 2050, uh, how how do you get there on addressing climate change in these with this political uncertainty and with the state's well, leading? Sure. Well, I think in relationship to this year, it, it is a matter of educating folks on the power of their vote. You know, we're you know, just not that far away from when everybody gets the opportunity to engage in our civic process. Um, so we need to make sure that people understand, you know, that their vote can actually translate into change. It can translate into getting people uh, who you don't have to convince about, you know, the immediacy of the climate emergency. Um, it also helps folks to understand that we can create a whole new set of economic opportunities in that space. I think that we also, in this moment, um, continue to support young leaders um, and all the incredible energy and innovation that they have going on uh, and letting them know how valued they are, along with our frontline communities providing the support in that space and keeping the um, you know, communication open with brothers and sisters across the planet, which is so important. Um, because unfortunately, you know, our current administration is kind of uh, close the doors uh, to significant conversations with others. All of that moving into November, uh, getting the right sort of results there, and then very, very rapidly um, getting in place a number of steps that are going to be critical as the IPCC report and the National Climate As Assessment Report is shared with us. You know, we'll be in that nine year time frame there. So we're going to have to do a whole bunch of things very quickly uh, to be able to address. Um, some very, very uh, significant challenges that we're going to be facing. I'd imagine that if were we not in this era of social distancing right now, we would be seeing rallies and protests around the world for the 50th Earth Day. Obviously, it's, that's not going to happen next week. From your perspective as someone with very deep connections in organizing and communities and promoting change, uh, how has all of that changed in this new virtual world that we're in right now and I, do you think some of these changes are, are going to stick in the way people organize even not being able to see each other face to face i think it is you know it, it again it's an exciting time you know challenges bring out the best hopefully in, in most folks and there were huge huge you know million plus people rallies that were planned and now folks have taken that online 
Um, there are literally all across our country and across the planet, a number of virtual events that are planned. It's exciting. I can't wait uh, until Earth Day because mm. there are so many artists and entertainers uh, who are going to be a part of helping to bring people together, helping to motivate folks, helping to get people, you know, connected, uh, you know, in a number of different ways, uh, young leaders and others. You know, we've got the Earth Day Network and others who just got all of these different uh, opportunities to learn and engage. People are getting registered to vote online where, where, where you can. Um, it, it's amazing seeing how quickly people were able to sort of shift or pivot um, and, and get these pieces in place. And I think that you will see that this is also building bridges between communities and organizations who maybe hadn't traditionally been as connected. Um, and you're going to see, you know, these new online platforms um, as ways to, you know, just bring the country and bring others uh, more closely together in a time when we can't physically touch each other. We are touching each other through virtual platforms uh, and real change is going to come out of that. That brings me to my last question, which is your, your work with the Hip Hop Caucus. Uh, what is it about music and hip hop in particular that makes it such a, a a critical or useful platform for speaking truth to power? Well, you know, many of these artists and entertainers, you know, they come from what folks are talking about. You know, it's not a theoretical sort of set of conversations or creations. Um, and music, you know, music has always been a big part of my life. But, you know, it is a connector. It is a bridge builder. Um, and, you know, hip hop is the number one musical genre in the world. Um, so, you know, all the various forms that are out there, whether it's country music or bluegrass or hip hop or rap um, or classical um, or, or, you know, some of the other forms that, that folks are down with, you know, it's an opportunity um, to, to actually connect, to, you know, we have way too many walls that people build between each other, between communities, between races. Um, and it's an opportunity to, to break those down. Uh, and instead of having walls, you know, to have bridges. So, uh, you know, I, I was so blessed to be at the Hip Hop Caucus for two years and we're very thankful for that experience because I got a chance to see and, and hear artists, you know, who really got it. You know, we worked with uh, Taboo from the Black Eyed Peas and uh, he and the Magnificent Seven did Stand Up for Standing Rock, which we won an MTV Music Award for, which really put a, you know, a, a spotlight on what was going on there in, in Standing Rock, but also you know, why water quality is so important and how there's a cultural aspect to it. And a number of others, you know, Anthony Smith, you know, redoing the Beatles song and just touching everyone with uh, Here Comes the Sun, really pointing folks forward and looking at you know, the positive possibilities that you're really just a reach away so you know music the arts is a big part of this new paradigm of how we make change happen there are times right now when all of us feel despair bleak somewhat alone because of all of this uh who do you put on who do you listen to when you need to feel inspired wow um there are so many folks i listen to drake <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm, you nice. know, Chance the Rapper. I love Chance the Rapper because he, you know, uses his uh, activism in, in a very, you know, powerful way of, you know, getting resources to folks, getting people engaged. Common. I love Common because uh, he, he just, 
you know what I mean? Everything he does. He's the best. Yeah. He's the best. Uh, Cardi B, I love Cardi because Cardi gets engaged in the, uh, you know, in the political process and, you know, reaching a whole different set of folks than many others would be able to. Uh, I mean, there's a laundry list of folks that I listen to. And of course, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't give uh, a shout out to Chuck D. People tease me all the time because Public Enemy was one of the first groups I ever started to follow back in the day. And to the, you know, to this particular moment, you know, Chuck and the rest of them are still killing it, still educating people uh, and still letting people know that, you know, you have to fight the power. Except for Flavor Flav, but we'll leave that there. All right. Yeah. Mustafa Wait, Santiago. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> Mustafa Santiago Ali. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Thank you. And y'all stay blessed. And remember that we can help folks move from surviving to thriving. And that's it for another episode of Go West Young Podcast. I've got to say, as bleak as these times are, I really needed a shot of optimism like that. Thanks so much again to Mustafa Santiago Ali, as well as Patrick Dooling from the Western Slope Conservation Center. I do appreciate all of the suggestions all of you have sent in for future guests and episodes. We're going to try to get to all of them here in the next few months. I hope all of you are staying safe getting outside when you can do it in a socially distanced and safe way. I said it in our last episode, I'll say it again. Go ahead, get out on the trails near where you live, but take a pass if it's crowded. Wear a mask if you can get one or make one. The sooner we get this disease under control, the sooner we can all really get outside again. I'm Aaron Weiss, and on behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks for listening. (laughs) 